Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this New Year's edition, the Bank of Canada Conspiracy. You know, I equate this to the old opium wars where Western European countries, because they had this industry of opium, were forcing the Chinese to buy opium. We are being forced, literally like addicts, onto interest from these private central bankers, and there's absolutely no need for it. If you want to support my work here at Strange Planet, please consider becoming an official donor. It's easy. Just go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet. There are several donation tiers to choose from, from a dollar per month to $50 a month. For the month of December, new donors at the 10, 20, and $50 per month tier receive a free mug from my Strange Planet shop. Donors in the $20 tier also have their names appear on a crawl during the YouTube live stream of my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show. And donors in the $50 tier receive a special on-air thank you on my radio program. Whatever you give, your support helps keep my radio program and this podcast going. Help me pursue the truth wherever it leads. Patreon.com forward slash Strange Planet. Thank you and God bless. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Wednesday and welcome to 2020. Happy New Year. I wish you all good health, peace, joy, and prosperity. Many of us begin the new year with a bit of a hangover, not only from overindulging with the wine and champagne, but we also, some of us, indulge with the credit card going into debt to buy extravagant Christmas presents. Debt, of course, can spiral out of control and trap us, enslave us. Government debt is also toxic and can prevent governments from funding much-needed infrastructure projects or adequately financing health and welfare programs. Here in Canada, our federal debt is over half a trillion dollars and servicing that debt, in other words, just paying the interest on the outstanding debt, costs us taxpayers almost $30 billion a year. Imagine how that money could be spent on so many other things like defense, roads, subways, hospitals, safe drinking water for Aboriginal people living on reservations. And this debt, as it turns out, is almost entirely unnecessary. We have something called the Bank of Canada Act, which established a publicly owned Central Bank of Canada back in the 1930s. It was designed to lend money to all levels of government here at 0% or very low interest rates. So what happened? What changed? Hold on to your hats, folks. Toronto lawyer Rocco Galati is in court to challenge how the Bank of Canada does business. He's representing a small group that contends the Bank of Canada is mandated 
to provide debt-free support for public projects undertaken by federal, provincial, and city governments. Mr. Galati, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, sir? Good. How are you, Richard? Thank you for having me. Very well. Uh, I'm, I'm quite well as well. <laughs> Lots of wells. Now, we've had uh, the Honorable Paul Hellyer on this program a number of times, uh, who's uh, talked about the need for reforming the Bank of Canada. Uh, for those uh, who, who might think this is all very sort of esoteric and arcane, give us a brief thumbnail sketch, for the, a brief history of the Bank of Canada and its purpose. Sure. But before I do that, actually, Paul Hellyer is a member of uh, one of the plaintiffs here, the Comer. He's a member of uh, Comer. Uh, briefly, the Bank of Canada was set up in 1934 and then nationalized as a public bank in 1938. And its central purpose during those Depression years was to be able to uh, float interest or low interest-free loans, but it was interest-free loans in those years, uh, up until 1974, for what we call uh, human capital expenditure and infrastructure, that is hospitals, health, roads, uh, universities, uh, and whatnot, and whatever needs the country had. Now, this mechanism between 1938 to 1974 uh, saw Canada pay its World War II debt a lot faster than most countries. In fact, most countries only recently paid it in the last 10 years. That's right. Uh, it also we, funded the St. Lawrence Seaway, did it not? St. Lawrence Seaway, the Trans-Canada Highway, and if you recall, if you're of that generation, the explosion of building of universities and hospitals and schools during the 60s and 70s. All this was paid for through the Bank of Canada at low or no interest. And all of that was interest-free, no interest, yes. Okay, and this was done... And in 1974, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau agreed to join uh, what is called the Bank of International Settlement in Basel, Switzerland, which, for lack of a better word, is a central bank for central banks. Right. Uh, Trudeau, before he died, uh, c uh, confessed that he that was one of the biggest decisions he regretted in his political career, saying he didn't really understand the economics and the consequences. I don't think economics were Trudeau's strong point. No. Was no. he was he fooled? Was he tricked into it? Who was advising him? I think I, I believe at the time uh, uh, Mr. Turner was the finance minister, but I may be mistaken. I don't. I don't I, I'm not. I, I don't. I don't recall. But whoever was advising him, he agreed. Now, what people have to understand about central banks is that there's two types of central bank. A private central bank, that's a private bank for profit, and a public central bank. Right. Canada is the only country in the G8, and in fact, I think in the G20, to have a public central bank. That means it reports and answers to Parliament and the citizens. All the other central banks, in the, let's say the G8 for now, the Federal Reserve in the United States is a private bank. The Bank of England is a private bank. The Bank of Italy, on and on and on. So Canada is the only country that has a public bank as its central bank. So the end shot of joining this group over in Europe is that they dictate monetary policy. They dictate interest rates. They dictate everything our central bank is supposed to deal with. But they're private actors after their own interests and profit. They couldn't care less about Canada right. now, or any other country. Uh, Rocco, my understanding is, uh, uh, the last time I checked, the federal debt 
Never mind the combined debts of the provinces. Just look at the federal debt. We're looking at about $600 billion. Yeah, six twenty, six seventy, somewhere in there, yeah. Right. And I have heard, uh, it may have been the Honorable Mr. Hellyer who told me this, that 95% of that debt is attributable to compound interest since 1974. Uh, that, 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 that I think uh, there was a misunderstanding there. That debt is the principal. However, since 1974... Since 1974, we have paid $1.1 trillion in compound interest servicing ah, that debt. Right. Okay? Right. So, for instance, in the last budget, the budget is about $228 billion, and we're paying $28 billion in interest. Now, people have to understand, to put that in context... $28 billion is more than the entire defense budget in Canada, and it's more than what the feds transferred to the provinces for health care to every province. This is the kind of interest we're talking about. It's huge. And, and who do we pay that interest to? When we talk about international, is it all international lenders, or does, is some, does some of that go to the holders of Canadian saving bonds, perhaps here in Canada? Uh, well, some of that debt is by bonds, but most of that debt is to domestic and foreign banks, a lot of the central banks over in Europe. It's mostly foreign. Uh, Rocco, w- would you say that this is the most important case of your career? Uh, it certainly is. It's, it's, it's the biggest, most important case I've done, and I've done some pretty big cases in my 27 years at the bar. I, can I just... Uh, f- uh, uh, clarify something you said, Richard. Uh, yes. Two things. One, uh, Comer is not that small. It has 248 members, and uh, although the, most of them, for privacy reasons, don't want to be okay. named. Uh, secondly, I, can I detail for your audience the second part of the claim that's as important, which is linked to the Bank of Canada? Uh, under the Bank of Canada, the ultimate boss is the Minister of Finance. We also seek uh, a declaration and a uh, mandatory order that the Minister of Finance stop the dishonest way that they table the budget every year. Here's what they do. Instead of tabling the anticipated revenues and the anticipated expenditures and therefore come up with an anticipated debt deficit or surplus, the revenue side is dishonest because they don't disclose the revenue collectible at its gross end, but they only disclose it when you deduct tax credits, anticipated tax credits, back to the taxpayers. So simply put, it goes something like this. They, for instance, say our anticipated revenue is going to be $240 billion. Our anticipated expenditure is $280. We're going to have a deficit of $40 billion. That's not true. Their anticipated revenue is probably $350 or $400, and then they kick back anticipated tax credits. All right. The reason that's important is if the MPs actually knew how much money is coming in, they may decide not to run a deficit. I got you. Okay. I I think, you know, the the fact that there are shenanigans and and shell games going on, we sort of bake that into the equation at this point, but I'm I'm glad you you clarified that point. But I do want to get back to the Bank of Canada. Let us understand exactly how this would work. If Is it simply uh, changing the the Bank of Canada Act? How would this be done to revert the the Bank of Canada back to its original purpose? No, the, the bank, it's never changed. The present law is the same as it was in 1938. They're just ignoring it. That's why we're in court. So it wasn't even done by an act of parliament? No, no, it's just by the decision of the finance minister not to request interest-free loans anymore. And that was John Turner, uh, you were uh, correct. There's various ones. Uh, there, there's uh, Goodale. All, all, all uh, finance ministers, since we've joined the Bank of International Settlements, 
sing the same mantra. One, the, quote, banking community would not like it, and who are they? It's a bunch of private foreign bankers. Uh, secondly, it creates inflation, which is bogus. I mean, Obama and Harper in 208 gave out a trillion dollars to save the banks, and it caused no inflation. Well, they're printing money, and they can't get the inflation rate you know, to 2%, which That's is their right. target. That's right. We're talking about negative inflation, in fact. But anyway, so, so there's no laws that have to be changed. The laws simply have to be respected, and that's why we're going in to seek a declaration and, uh, that, 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 that this law should be applied. Another thing I should mention is there are mechanisms on this loan provision that avoid inflation. That is, uh, there, are, there are limits to what the Bank of Canada can lend. So for the federal government, it's up to a maximum of one-third of its budget, and for the provinces, a, a maximum of one quarter, and it has to be paid in the next fiscal year, which means is there's no inflationary impact. And what it also means, it forces governments to balance budgets and use the money wisely because they're getting it for, they're getting right. up to a third interest free. Would we be able to, if we were to um, use the Bank of Canada as it was intended, would we be able to pay off the international lenders and the and the domestic banks the six hundred billion over a fairly short course of time, so we could get out from underneath this this debt and the crushing debt payments? If we did it in a way that wouldn't cause a severe shock, yeah, like a fifteen twenty year period, we could pay it all off. So, yeah, this give us the status. This is before the federal court. So what happened was it was filed, believe it or not, in twenty eleven. The government moved to strike it. At the first level, the prothonotary struck it, saying the court can't look at these issues. At the second level, I, I won the appeal, and the court said, yes, we can, but there's a few problems because we asked for damages too. So the judge said, go ahead and redraft the problematic parts if you want. Uh, the government appealed the fact that we could go, could go ahead to the Federal Court of Appeal, uh, three judges, and this January the Federal Court of Appeal said, no, this can proceed, just amend the statement of claim, just to uh, correct the plea. Were you shocked that the, the Federal Court paved the way f- to hear this? I, I, I'll tell you, I, I, notwithstanding the fact that I believe I'm on completely firm grounds on the legal analysis, I was pleasantly surprised they let it go forward, yes. Hmm. And on March 26, I filed the amended claim. Now we're waiting for the government's response. Uh, they're going to defend it, or if they're going to try some more shenanigans, then we'll be back in court. But, uh, but it w- in my view, it will proceed. May I ask if you're doing this pro bono? N- uh, no, no. But I'm not. I'm not making the kind of money a Bay Street lawyer would be making. Right. No, I would imagine you would yeah. incur some considerable yeah. costs. Yeah. So yes, yeah. no, yeah. I understand. Yeah. Okay. No. So you're but, taking this, uh, no, taking I, this on now. Before this case, uh, you were approached. Uh, by this group, uh, were, had you heard about this, or did you have to be sort of brought up to speed on on all of this? What was your familiarity with the case? Well, I I, ha- I had to, I don't know how to how to describe this. Uh, looking at the provision of the Bank Act is easy, but then doing the historical research and then the underpinning economic countervailing theories, and then that to translate that back into legalese took took a good part of a year. When you when you learned what was going on, this game, yeah. uh, what was your reaction? Were you were you flabbergasted, I, shocked? I was incensed because, I, but you know, most people don't know this, although the, I, I do a lot of constitutional work and I've done a lot of t- uh, anti-terrorism cases and I'm sure a lot of people have seen my cases in the press, but uh, by training I was a tax lawyer and <laughs> I was a tax litigator and I have a master's in law and tax. And what most people don't realize that tax 
and constitutional law, the history of it goes hand in hand because all tax is is the exacting of our uh, the fruits of our labor and a, a social reengineering and and redistribution of that labor. And so tax law is very important. It shows you how the government is controlling the economic wealth of the country. When I learned about this, I was just incensed. And where does conspiracy come into this? I mean, people don't understand oftentimes that conspiracy is a legal term. Yes. But what is, where is the conspiracy here? Okay, the conspiracy is in the, in the central bankers using the banking system to manipulate and keep poor country, countries down and simply to dominate countries and affect their social policies to their liking uh, to maximize profit. And there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with the word conspiracy. In Canada, a conspiracy is an indictable offense. Yes. If you, if you uh, agree to do something knowing it will hurt X uh, or it's against the, the, the criminal law, it's, it's, a, it's an offense in itself. On the civil side, uh, there's a tort of conspiracy, which amounts to this. If people agreeing to do something illegally, which has the effect of hurting somebody else, or agreeing to do something that is legal with the intention to hurt somebody else. That's a conspiracy. Right, and right. So, and so the conspiracy has been around since Julius Caesar. That's true. You know? Yes, absolutely. And when people accuse me of being a, con- a conspiracy theorist, I say to them, well, if I'm, if I'm a conspiracy theorist, you must be a coincidence theorist. <laughs> but coincidences are not criminal code offenses. That's that's true. Well, you know, and I always say, what is a what is an investigative journalist and what is a homicide detective if not a conspiracy theorist? Of course, they're trying to piece together. But but, you know, this case, although it's been written up as because you know it's been written up as an allegation of conspiracy, really, the allegations are that the government of Canada is not abiding by this statute, the Bank of Canada Act. Right. And when, when a gover- and second of all, the, the government of Canada is relinquishing sovereignty and abdicating its duty to, to govern to foreign private individuals. When you do that, that's unconstitutional. It's you treasonous. See, it, well, Mr. Hellier says it's treasonous, and I have a hard time arguing with him. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. I am um, I am following the situation in Greece very closely. Right. My wife is, is is Greek. My children half right. Greek, and and that's a, a prime example of what happens when you when you give up your control over your currency. You lose your sovereignty. Right. You're getting orders from Brussels now. Um, right. uh, so, well, it's interesting you mention Greece because one of the plaintiffs, Mr. Krem, who God bless him, turned a hundred last night here, uh, actually before. About five years ago, flew to Greece twice at the request of the current government when they were in opposition to advise them on monetary policy. That's interesting. Yes, you mentioned William Cram, and yeah. uh, this is a, a, a kind of an interesting backstory. Maybe we can spend a few minutes. Uh, tell us about uh, Mr. Cram, who is a native uh, Torontonian, and uh, I understand a former Trotskyite. Well, I actually took the case in part just because Mr. Krem was one of the, uh, the clients. Mr. Krem fought in Spain with his friend George Orwell in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, George Orwell was a close friend of his. In fact, a lot of Mr. Orwell's economic theories in his novels came from Mr. Krem. He was a Trotskyite. He then ended up uh, seeing the murder of Trotsky himself in Mexico. He was in Mexico with Trotsky when uh, Trotsky got murdered by Stalin's henchmen. And so he's been he's been he's been interested in economic policies, and he's written 
he's predicted every single meltdown we've had in the last 20 years from the IT to the to the stock market to the real estate and now the financial markets before it happened of course people wrote him off because of his age right, right. you know he's writing these books uh, he wrote to the, his last one a year and a half ago he's writing these books into, into his late 80s and 90s but his analysis is right on the money I'm just looking here at the, uh, the Toronto Star article. It said he he once stood over Leon Trotsky's corpse. That's right. After the Russian revolutionary was assassinated in Mexico City, with a nice pick, no no less. Yeah, I, I believe he might have given one of the eulogies. I'm not sure about that, but he was he was there in in uh, in uh, in Mexico with uh, with Trotsky, trying to uh, you know rehabilitate the uh, the Trotskyite. Uh, uh, philosophy. By the way, most people don't know George Orwell was a Trotskyite. I knew he was a Fabian. I didn't know he was a Trotskyite. Uh, he was a Trotskyite, and when he wrote his books, uh, especially uh, uh, Animal Farm, Animal Farm, he had a foreword written, which was removed for almost forty years. Basically, uh, uh, T. S. Eliot, who was the chief editor in Faber and Faber, refused to publish it and threatened to have him charged with treason. The government threatened to have him charged with treason because England was an ally of Joseph Stalin at the time. Ah. And the foreword said, you know, Stalin's communism is not communism. There's nothing wrong with communism if you follow the Trotsky philosophy. Right, because Animal Farm is certainly uh, uh, an indictment of, 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 of communism under, under Stalin. That's right, but it was never sold as such. People see. People assumed for years and generations of schoolchildren assumed that uh, George Orwell was was anti-communist because of, because of his criticism of communism. Because they removed the foreword where he explained the the type of communism that he 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 propounded. Right. Yeah. Okay. So back to the uh, the case before the federal courts. Right. Uh, if okay. So give us the the timeline here. What what's next? How is well, this going to happen? Well, if the government decides to play games and uh, move to strike again on some other specious ground, we'll be in court fairly quickly. If not, the government has to file a defense, and we move on to discovery, presenting our evidence, and hopefully within 18 months get a trial date. And then if you get um, – if you win at the federal court, then the, the federal government will appeal, and it will go to the Supreme Court. Is that right? I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm almost certain they will appeal. All right. Yeah. And how do you see it? I mean, where I'm asking you to speculate here, obviously. But it, what do you mean in terms of timeline? Well, timeline and, and if it gets to the Supreme Court, um, what happens then? Well, hard, hard to say, depending on how, how, how healthy or sick or dead the financial uh, system is. You know, we have a serious possibility that the global financial market will collapse like oh, it did in 2019. I'm you know? 100% behind you on that. I, 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 the, the, the figures that have, the manipulation of data in terms of unemployment right. and, is ridiculous. So, so I think one of the, I'll be honest with you, one of the, reas one of the reasons I believe that the, the courts were not as hesitant in just blowing this away as they might have been is because of 208. Right. You see, generally speaking, if things are humming and you go to a court with this kind of big issue, they'll say, well, you know, we're not, we're not the government. We're not going to second-guess the government. But I think they had a second, a second thought, given what happened in 2008, in terms of allowing it to proceed and see where it goes. Had uh, the Bank of Canada been operating the way it should have been operating in 2008, and municipal, provincial, federal governments could have gone there and borrowed money at 0% interest. Do you think things might have been different in terms of the uh, the economic impact here? I think th things would have been different uh, 
in the, in the sense that it would have uh, you know it would have helped some people who were out in terms of uh, uh, their mortgage and that to Harper's credit, but to the indictment of the system. CBC unveiled that in addition to the 60 billion our government gave three banks to, to avoid collapse, the Harper, the, this government absorbed 160 billion in defaulted CHCM uh, mortgages. So when you add the two, a 220 billion in the space of two years, the government gave three banks the equivalent of an entire federal budget just to 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 to, to avoid their collapse because if one or two major banks in Canada collapse, the domino effect is it'll bring down the entire system. And uh, and I understand that uh, somewhat surreptitiously buried into in, in, like on page 34 of a piece of legislation was in a bail-in provision. Okay, let me explain that. It's not a confiscation, Richard. Let me explain to your listeners something that most people find shocking. When you deposit $100 in the bank, the bank only, uh, you know, historically was higher, but now it's gone as low as 2%, only has to hold $2 of that money as a reserve, okay? Now, most people think that when they deposit money into a bank, it's their money. In law, that money belongs to the bank. You have entered a contract for, to give over your money in exchange for interest on that money, but that money belongs to the bank. So... When a bank goes bankrupt or has more debt than assets, we can bail out the bank. And that's what happened in 2008. We bailed out the bank's shortfall. What Finance Minister Flaherty said in his budget twice, he put taxpayers on notice that they will, the government will no longer bail out the banks, but you are bailing into their debt with your deposits. So if a bank goes bankrupt, you're a simple creditor, and you get two dollars, two cents on the dollar on your savings. You understand? I do. <laughs> disturbing. So it's not that disturbing. they're confiscating your money. That's the contract you have with the bank, believe it or not. And this happened in the 90s, where Supreme Court of Canada Justice Bud Esty led the commission and the inquiry. In a bank that went uh, savings, uh, a trust uh, uh, company, which is the same as a bank, that went belly up in Alberta, depositors ended up getting eight cents on the dollar of their deposits. That's we, in Canada. It we, happened here in Canada in the 90s. Sounds to me like we need an Icelandic revolution. I, 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 I couldn't disagree with you. So that's the bail-in. People have to understand. It's not our money. It's not your money once you deposit it. You're entitled to interest under the contract, but you know, if a, if a company goes bankrupt, then you're a simple creditor. Right. We, we're just chattel, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, we are. Um, yeah, we were just office furniture. Uh, so much chattel. Uh, so, again, this goes to the federal court. Uh, if the um, if it's allowed to proceed, in other words, if the uh, the federal government doesn't throw up any more obstacles, uh, it'll proceed, and uh, then this, if you win, then the government will appeal. We're not hearing, for example, Thomas Mulcair from the NDP. We're not hearing Justin Trudeau from the Liberals, uh, you know, talking about this. Obviously, none of them. They all have a vested interest. They all want things to go along as they are. Why does I, I'm, I'm asking this rhetorically, I, I suppose, but you know, why is that? I, I there's many reasons, Richard, and it's funny you say that because somebody who's aware of this case, an alternative media reporter. 
Ask Justin Trudeau, and the clip is on YouTube. Ask Justin Trudeau, what do you think of this, uh, uh, you know, Bank of Canada case, and why is the Bank of Canada not giving interest-free loans? And he said, "quote I don't believe in conspiracy theories." Yeah, that's that's the uh, okay. the shorthand well, uh, the, for. But but you know, most of the if I most bet, of them don't understand the exactly. Fact of the matter is they don't even know what money is or they, where it comes from. Well, people think they know what the term money means, but money is like love. Everybody thinks they know what it means. Try to define it and apply it universally. See, money, money, money is a very, uh, money is a very uh, uh, vague concept because people confuse currency with money, and people confuse different forms of money as being the absolute exhausting of money. Money, really, if you try to define money, all money is is a form of consensual transaction, right, for economic exchange. And the settlement of debt—that's what money is. Right. So that could be, that could be bonds, currency, coins, barter, credit. For instance, when you write me a check, people think money transfers. It's just a transfer of a credit. And so it's not actual—it's not actual currency there, but it's a form of money. So there's different forms of money, but people confuse uh, how money is created. People don't know how money is created. People don't know that money is created. Yes, literally out of thin air. Literally, yeah. More of my conversation with Toronto lawyer Rocco Galati when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. CBD oil seems to be all the rage, but it's important to learn the difference and know the background of something that isn't new, but in fact very very old. Did you know that the hemp plant which CBD is extracted from has been around for over 10,000 years? And this is probably a conservative figure. Ancient Life Oil is a trusted name for high-quality CBD that can help you reach your ideal well-being. I take an eyedropper full of Ancient Life CBD oil every morning. And one of the things I've noticed and the people around me have noticed is that I'm far less anxious, less stressed, more relaxed. And that's a great feeling. It also leaves me more focused. And I even find that after exercising, I recover from muscle soreness much quicker. Ancient Life Oil. It's big relief in a little bottle. And they have products for your pets as well. Ancient Life CBD oil has no psychoactive effect, and it won't get you high. And this product is legal in all 50 states. When you're healthy, you're happy. And the truth about this wonderful plant is that it wants to give back to mankind. Life, longevity, and happiness. Ancient Life Oil from ancientlifeoil.com. The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again, I don't know what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Uh, Rocco Galati stays with us for a few moments yet to discuss his remarkable uh, David and Goliath case before the Federal Court of Canada, uh, challenging or accusing the uh, the Federal Finance Minister. The uh, Is the IMF involved in this as well? Well, the IMF is one of the individuals, yeah, that has uh, the ability to transact with the Bank of Canada under the statute. Uh, the other thing I, wa- I-, I wanted to say, Richard, is that, uh, you know, I equate this to the old opium wars. 
where the uh, where Western European countries, because they had this industry of opium, were forcing the Chinese to buy opium. We are being forced, literally like addicts, onto interest from these private central bankers, and there's absolutely no need for it. You know, uh, and it's 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 it's. it's, it's 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 somewhat fraudulent in a way too because they get their money from central banks banks at next to zero percent interest and then they relend it to our government right, right. at commercial rates. Now in China, I believe they have a, a a public central bank. Do they not? Of course they do. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so and that's why they're doing well. The other thing I want to mention is huge in North, infrastructure projects going on there course. right now. Yeah. In North America, there's only one other entity that's ever had a public central bank: North Dakota. Since 1905. Interesting. And you know what they have not had since 1905 in North Dakota? A single deficit. Isn't that interesting? No debt, no deficit. Every year they have the same problem. Do we build more infrastructure or do we cut taxes? And how is how are they able to do that? I mean, uh, do they not have a Federal Reserve? Um, are they not... No, they're allowed. State banks are allowed. There are another. There are now seven states in which people have introduced uh, members have introduced bills to create a public bank. It's like the, let me give you a simple example, uh, uh, Richard, of how on a on 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 a national scale this works. Let's say if you if you have a prop if if your wife has a property and she needs a mortgage from a bank, rather than doing that, let's say. If you have an RSP, a self-directed RSP, right. you can give your wife that mortgage. Let's say it's an it's a it's an income property. The money she pays back into your RSP interest gets deducted from the income of that of that uh, uh, property that's uh, uh, ma- making income. Right. So it's a revolving door from you from your wife. To back to your RSP tax-free, principal and interest. Right. This is a similar mechanism. People think, oh, no, it's too good to be true. Well, it's not. The mechanism is there. Right, right. Because we are the bank. Yeah, that's right. We're lending to ourselves. And again, uh, uh, how much could, let's say uh, I'm sitting here in Toronto, you're in Toronto. Uh, What percentage of the annual municipal budget could John Tory go to the Bank of Canada and borrow? Well, that's changed because during this, at a given time, the province is mocked about direct payments to the municipalities, so it would have to come through the through the uh, uh, province. Okay. A province can borrow up to 25% of its annual budget and do what they want with it. They can then transfer it down to the municipality. However, let me correct myself. Under now the what's recognized constitutionally as the the spending power from the feds. There is nothing to stop the feds from transferring directly to the municipalities through interest-free loans, and again, so long as that does not exceed 30% of the federal budget. So they have that wiggle room. That's a lot of money. When you say seven, you know, 30% of last year's budget is $70 billion. Provincially or federal, uh, federally. Federally, federally. $70 billion. $70 billion. We could take $50 billion of that. Yeah. Pay off the the principal on the debt, and we'd have another twenty billion right. uh, to build bridges, roads, right. put proper drinking water in all of the reserves across this country. Right. Well, there's a lot. Look, look, look what we did as a nation between 1938 and 1974, less than 40 years. 
we became one of the leading nations and the healthiest nations in terms of education and infrastructure because of the Bank of Canada mechanism. No two ways about it. It's it's frustrating that no none of the uh, you know the, the major political parties uh, are, are willing to take this on. Now this is a major platform in in the Canadian Action Party, which was formed by uh, the Honorable Paul Hellier. Right. Um, but you know they're barely a, a blip on the radio on, on, on radar, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, you see, one of the problems uh, one of the problems with this is that members of Parliament, and I've observed this in other uh, contexts, when I was. Uh, you know, making the position against the anti-terrorism legislation 15 years ago, is that the MPs don't want to appear stupid because they don't know and they don't want to educate themselves, so they put their head in the sand. This is one of the problems with the elected members of Parliament. And unfortunately, as I've, I've experienced in my legal career, when you have a situation where democracy, the electoral part of democracy, is broken down, there's only one institution that acts as a check against the executive that, and parliament, and that's the courts. Right. And, and you, you know, you've seen that with, uh, you know, other big cases I've won with respect to the judiciary and whatnot. Yes. And, and well, and I would throw in the media. We are and, the last line of defense. Right. That's right. And uh, we have abdicated the playing field. We've we've abandoned the playing field. Rather. Right. I mean, it took me four years to get the mainstream uh, media to break this. You know, there was a resistance in covering the story. I'm not surprised. Because nobody wants to look silly or stupid. I mean, we're, well, our culture has a problem with vicarious embarrassment. I don't know why. Well, I'll tell you, I, uh, I'm going to go public with it right now. I, I was working at the CBC, uh, producing. I produced two uh, documentary series, and one of them was called Out of Their Minds, uh, which is kind of a play on words, but the, it was about heretics and game changers and people with... You know, game-changing ideas, and, right. and I interviewed the Honorable Paul Hellyer about Bank of Canada reform, and it was perfect for the series, and it was quashed, and I yeah. was not given a reason. Well, and, that, and that's because most people don't know that the ultimate boss at the CBC is Cabinet by its le- governing legislation. Cabinet can issue an order to CBC in secret, and they have to follow it and not t- talk about it. Most people don't know that. Hmm. It's a public broadcasting. It's owned by the government, e- even though it pretends to be uh, arm's length. What can we do? How can we? How can we? Uh, you know, move this thing forward and get this. This is the most important, one of the most important issues. You know, facing our. It's, it's about our future. We we need to talk about it. We need to uh, educate other people about it. You know, encourage people to go to the Comer website. Uh, uh, there's an election coming. Raise it. Raise it with the uh, candidates in your writings. The whole traditional batch, and you know, and uh, we have to fight this because. It's really, it's really incredible that a government can choose to ignore a law. Now, I want to say something else that's interesting, Richard, before, uh, before we finish. Often people tell me, well, why doesn't the government just change the law and get rid of this mechanism, right? You would think, rather than fight this case or other cases, and there's two answers to that. The first is if it got into parliamentary debate, Canadians might get educated, but that's not the primary reason. The reason they don't get rid of this is they're no fools. They know the international banking system can collapse, and if and when it does, we're going to use that provision big time like we did in 1938. No government wants to lose that provision because it's easy to repeal a law. It's hard to reenact. Ah, right, right, right. So they know... It's, it's our safety net in case the international banking system collapses because then they can reborrow interest-free 
as long as everybody consensually agrees in a society, people have confidence in the banking system, they've used that provision before in that kind of situation, and the, our economy will hum as it did better than others because of it. Well, and part of the problem is is uh, the way our, our, our governments or our, our politicians uh, – here, here, let me cut to the quick. I think they're all the same. They act differently during an election, and you might say, well, how could the New Democrats be the same as the conservatives? What happens once they get in, in, in power is, you know, I don't know, call it the unseen hand, but they're all essentially, uh, they're all the same. They're members of this board of directors, and they're all just vying for their turn to be CEO. And they all work for the Queen of England. Yeah, you're, and, you're, and you're, you're quite right. That's the reason, for instance, we don't have proportional representation, you know? Everybody knows it's a good idea, it's more democratic, but they cynically say, well, when I'm in power, I wouldn't want that. I want an, I want an absolute majority. And so that's right. They just want their turn. They're just waiting for their turn, even though it's a broken system or it's, you know, we're at the point now in the, in the words of Bob Dylan in a recent uh, album where he said, we're bending broken rules. Hmm. I mean, that's how bad it's getting. The we're system bending, is really breaking rules. down. We're right. bending broken rules. Do you have any any uh, any friends uh, in in Parliament who who get it, who understand? Uh, one or two, but superficially. When I explain it to them, when I explain it to them, you know, in the way I have on this show, they get it. But then they have to raise the questions, and they, if they're going to take it up as an issue, they have to educate themselves a bit. And quite frankly, a lot of them are hesitant. Uh, Mr. Hellyer also remarked that that's one of the biggest problems is most MPs don't understand this. Not that it's rocket science. It's not splitting an atom, but it's understanding that, you know, the private interests that are touting this is a crazy idea, even though it was the national policy of this country for almost 40 years, have different self-private interests. And so they're in the majority, so... You know, they always say, not with just with this case, Richard, but every time I bring a case to the courts, they always say, oh, I'm out there, I'm going to lose. And I, I jokingly and realistically say, in fairness to them, they're right 37% of the time. <laughs> right. But, but, you know, but they, they try to laugh it off and people don't, don't want to take that on. It's interesting that the, uh, the, the governors of the Bank of Canada primarily come from, you know, Goldman Sachs. Oh yeah, they're all tied into the same the same fraudulent web that that uh, you know that uh, put us into this mess in the in the in the in the first place. I mean, they're all they're all old. Uh, uh, most most of them are European bankers. They're the most prominent. They have the most money, including the Vatican Bank. You know, all these banks in Europe still control the money supply around the world. Remarkable, Rocco. Yeah. I, uh, not to, to to gush, but I, I think you're a hero. Well, I don't know. I'm just a lawyer doing my job. Well, you're doing a, you're doing one hell of a job. I mean, I, I I'm guessing that the uh, you know there aren't too many that would have taken this up. Right. Um, do you have you ever doubted for a minute the, this 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 journey that you're on? Have you ever regretted it? Not not for a second. I mean, I told my clients, listen, we may lose, but there's no doubt in my mind that we're on strong legal and constitutional grounds and the histories behind this it's just if we lose it's because for political reasons we're enslaved essentially we are enslaved yeah okay before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs I'll be back with a few words on an upcoming episode 
I want to tell you about something I discovered recently called carbon-60. I call it the miracle molecule. Now, you might remember an interview I did recently with a researcher, Chris Burris, who's looking to help people who experience pain, inflammation, loss of sleep, or lost mental acuity with his new C60 company, C60Evo.com. He has a product which is a consumable form of carbon-60 called ESS-60 that's been proven in peer-reviewed, published research to extend the lifespan of test rats by 90% while allowing them to live tumor-free. That's pretty amazing. Those rats were given the C60Evo.com formula. The formula is a powerful antioxidant, 172 times more powerful than vitamin C, and it's known to be a powerful anti-inflammatory. C60 is based on Nobel Prize winning chemistry. I highly recommend ESS60. The mighty Aphrodite and I take a tablespoon every morning and we're both pain-free and sleeping better than ever. Discover the benefits of carbon-60. I call it the miracle molecule, ESS60, from c60evo.com. Now, make sure to use the coupon code RS1SPEC. That's RS1SPEC for a special Christmas discount. Buy today at c60evo.com. That's c60evo.com. And don't forget the code RS1SPEC. This product has not been assessed by the FDA and is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. Coming up next on Conspiracy Unlimited, are high-placed Freemasons trying to recreate the Temple of Solomon whenever and wherever they can? Be sure to join me as I speak with Frank Albo, an architectural historian who believes he's uncovered the Hermetic Code hidden in plain sight. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. 